0: Hear the word of the Lord to you this morning. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And this one who will inherit my estate is a lazier of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant of my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land, to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Kenites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites—that's a lot of ites. Uh, thus ends the reading of God's holy and earth word. May he bless us to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. Woo! Figured I'd start this morning to be nice and succinct. With this quote from Dick Lucas, he's referring to the disproportion of the chapters of Genesis, how the outline, uh, like the first 11 chapters, right, gives us all the way up to Abram, and then all the rest of it is really Abram's family. We're talking like 40 chapters. So this is what he says. I love the, what, the point he makes. He says, the first 11 chapters, we get the beginning of creation, the beginning of man, the beginning of woman, sex, marriage, culture, music, business, everything crammed into 11 chapters, then the next 40 chapters all on one man and his family, Abraham and his children. Quite astonishing, isn't it? Because this is the interest of the Bible. After giving us the background that God made the whole world, then he brings us straight to the point. And says that in this world, God has called out a people for his own name. He has a family of people that belong to him. And it begins with Abraham. In other words, from God, let me, let me put that a little more simply for you. From God's perspective, this is where the action has always been in history. We talk about world history, and we read about all the rulers and all the nations. Well, really, God's main concern is about what the kingdom He is bringing in, the people He is gathering from all nations, all tribes, all tongues to belong to His church, to belong to His family, and that's why you get eleven cram chapters, and then you get the whole rest of it. This is God's family. He's doing it by His grace. And he's doing it for his glory. We're going to see that. And really, for you and me, and I found this out in 1986, like that whole commercial, I should have had a V8. The Holy Spirit came upon me, opened up my eyes, and I thought, wow, for 19 years in this world, I've been walking around like a dead man walking, like a zombie. There could be no more relevant questions. See, people are walking around every day, going about their everyday lives, and and they're not realizing, out of all the questions they could ask in the world, the most important one they could ask is that, am I going to be included in the people of God when the Lord Jesus comes home to take home his people? Now listen, we're going to do a little bit of Black History for Black History Month. You know the song? Oh, when the saints come marching in, like we all know, right? Come on. What's the next line? I want to be there in that number when the saints come marching. Well, the whole point is when the saints come, when the holy ones come with Jesus, amen? I want to be in that number. Now, here's the irony I a little bit of black history. The song didn't always go like that. Okay, it was popularized in jazz. It was, it was kind of beefed up. It was, it was to make it joyful and happy. But the black church, originally, this was a somber song. But you didn't know that. It was sung slowly. And the lyrics actually were, went more like this. Um, it did say when the saints come marching in, but it said, When the stars fall from the sky. When the moon turns red with blood. When the trumpet sounds the call. And when the horsemen begin to ride. <laughs> you follow me? That's the origin. This song was heavy. The, real, the question is, am I going to be one of God's beloved redeemed ones? Now the world, as I mentioned, doesn't recognize this as the most pressing, vital issue. But it most certainly is. What could be more important than to know whether or not you are in the family of God, and that when you leave this life, you will be with Him forever in paradise. Like I mentioned, in 1986, God brought that home to me. Santa, the most important thing is to know whether or not you're mine. Mm-hmm. And of course that I won't give you my testimony, but then I figured out how in the world do I find that out? Well, we're going to find that out this morning. Genesis 15 gives us the God-given answer to that crucial question. How can a wicked sinner, listen, this is important, be reckoned as righteous and thus have fellowship with a holy and righteous God? The God of all creation, by the way, there is no other. So you can't go somewhere else. We have that and much more here in this chapter. And because this chapter deals with both the covenant of grace, the word's in there, covenant. Didn't make that up. And it also deals with the nature of faith. It kind of rhymes. Covenant of grace, nature of faith. They're both in there. So we're going to see from Genesis 15 that God assures Abram of the covenant of grace, and Abram responds in saving or justifying faith. It's pretty cool. If only it was that simple. As we look at the text, it's true but it's a little more messy than that, isn't it? When we look at the extended here, let me give you a little outline of it. This might help you out a little bit. There it is, right? What we're going to see is I'll we'll look this way for a moment. look at there's like four scenes in this chapter, and each scene begins with what? The word of the Lord initiating and coming to Abraham, and then Abraham responding, as we're going to see. So God begins with God with this dialogue with God and Abraham which shows the intimacy that they had between one another. God initiates and assures Abram that he will do what he promised and Abram responds with a questioning faith. With a questioning faith. God reassures Abram that he will do what he promised to do by his grace and then Abram responds with a justifying faith. We're going to really want to focus on that one. And then we're going to see God again assures Abram that he's going to do what he says he's going to do by his grace. And this time, Abram does something, kind of throws us a monkey wrench. He asks for a sign. He asks for proof. And then God responds by confirming the covenant of grace with a solemn ritual. A visual presentation for Abraham's faith to say, I will do what I said. I'm going to do. So let's take a look at the first one. We're going to look at all four scenes here. And um, not all the same amount of time on each one. But we're going to look at the first one. God assures Abram of his grace. And Abram responds with questioning faith. And we're going to talk about this. So look at verse 1. After this, and by the way, the chapter before, Abram just rescued his nephew Lot, if you remember. He defeated the other kings. He saved uh, the king of Sodom. And... um, because Lot was taken as well, and he had rescued him. And if you remember, he refused to take the, the booty, refused to take the, the, the goods from the king of Sodom, because he said, "I don't want any. I don't want you to say you made Abram rich. Only God makes me rich." And he refused the worldly goods, and he continued to hold on to the promise. So after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision: "Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield." Your very great reward, or another translation of that, and it's it's really hard to determine, your reward will be very great. But either way, they both are biblical and they're both true. So once again, we see that God initiates in our relationship with him. I want you to see that. The first thing we need to see is that God's the one who seeks us out, who comes to us. And his divine condescension and grace, the word of the Lord, comes to Abel. And it comes at a very important time, so you know. Abram just insisted, I'm God's man. I'm not going to take your bribe. I'm not going to allow the king of, uh, of Sodom to steal the glory of the one true God. That'll preach. Amen. But here's the thing. This is where it gets good. God knows the secrets of the hearts of men. Did you know that? You could fake God in prayer. You could make it flower. You could pray in the King James Version. But you know God still knows what what you're really thinking. Ever since God promised Abram that incredible, outrageous blessing of a child in his old age, when Sarah was way past childbearing, and ever since he promised him this land that tons of other people already live in, He's been living like a foreigner in a foreign land. And what, I, what we need to see is, because we go from chapter to chapter, like that's how quick these things happen. It's been years since God promised him that. And still, you could hear in Abram's voice, we're going to see it in a moment I have no son. What's Abram saying? You told me I'd have a son. I'm telling everybody I'm going to be a a father. Still no son. You told me I'm going to have my own land. I live in tents from place to place. Walter Bruggeman summarizes the issue before us in these chapters this way. Why and how does one continue to trust solely in the promise when the evidence against the promise is all around? It is this scandal that's faced here. It's Abraham's embrace of this scandal that makes him the father of faith. Isn't that cool? Here's an important thing. What creates faith? I don't know if you've ever asked that question to yourself. Where does faith come from? And a follow-up question, what strengthens faith once it's given? Well, the Bible is very clear on the answer to that question. Faith comes from what? Hearing. And hearing what? The word of Christ. God gives faith by his grace through his word. He speaks it. And, of course, the the Bible is a means of grace where we feast on it daily to have our strength what? What? strengthened. And so we see a very important thing here and that is faith does something. I mean the word does something for us. What does it do? It stokes the flame of our faith. And I think it's very, very important for us to realize man does not live I'm bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God—not every meme that proceeds from Facebook, not every magazine article of the rich and famous, not every movie that Hollywood produces—but out of what? Every word proceeds from the mouth. Of so God's word comes to Abraham, let's not miss this, in the midst of his groaning. Because Abraham does believe, but it's a longing for the fulfillment of the promise. Sound familiar? Yes. Yes. You've got to love God's word to Abraham because he says, don't fear. Someday, I'll tell you to do something go count how many times God says, don't fear. You'll be amazed. He says, don't fear. I'm your shield. Your reward will be great. In other words, your refusal of worldly rewards, Abram, your willingness to live by faith, not sight, indeed will be greatly rewarded. The promise I made so many years ago still stands. You can trust me to keep my word. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my state is a lazier of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant of my household will be an heir. Good old Abram, always trying to help God keep his promise. You ever notice that? And if you ever notice, every time we try to help God, we we cause some problems, don't we? Next chapter, we're going to see a big one. But God knew this was in Abram's heart, and that's why He drew it out. He knew the scandal of a son was wearing of no son was wearing on his soul. But the cool thing is, as much as he was struggling with doubt, he was still believing. See, this, this is what it is. <laughs> he was struggling with doubt because he was trying to figure it out. You get that? No, listen. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and what? Lean not on your own understanding. You ain't going to figure it out. So God's word comes to him again, and that brings us to act two. God reassures Abram of his grace, and this time Abram responds with justifying faith. Look at verse four. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up to the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, what a beautiful scene. God taking his son out. Come here, let's take a walk. And you've got to remember, this is the desert, and I lived in Iowa. Yeah, I know. But it's flat. And when it's really dark out at night, guess what's really big? The sky. And guess what you could see on a really clear day? All the stars. And you got to imagine, this is what you would see in the desert. you look up and you would see this pitch black sky, but you would see the stars. All peeking out. And God says to Abram, not this guy, he's not going to be your heir. But listen, a son coming from your own body. And what's interesting here is that Abraham is not given any new information. You would think, okay, God's going to give him some more. Isn't this what he already told him? And I'm sorry, but I've got to tell you this. How, that's why, again, we need to be in the word constantly, reminded of the promises of God. God has no problem because you count how many times God's word keeps coming to Abraham and telling him the same thing. It's almost humorous. Then comes one of the most important verses in all the Bible. Paul takes a whole chapter in Romans 4 to deal with it. He deals with it in Galatians 3. James mentions it in chapter 2 of his epistle. You find this wonderful verse. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now this verse answers that ancient and yet very contemporary question that every person person should suspend all the other questions, too, until they get this answer. And that's the question of how a wicked sinner can be right or declared righteous before a holy and a righteous God. Now, a few uh, Wednesday nights ago, because we go deeper into Genesis on our Wednesday night studies, we dealt with Genesis 13, where there's that absolutely embarrassing scene of Abraham. Let's be honest. He tries to pass his wife off as his sister. Now remember, we're all one big family God. So you know, we all have those uncles. That we're like, oh no, Uncle Solis, please don't embarrass me. Well, this is the situation where the hero of the family, the one that you want everybody to meet, totally blows it. Totally sins against God. And he puts his wife's purity at risk. So this is no slight thing. And we were getting deep into this and showing how messed up Abraham is, and somebody says, "Excuse me, Pastor," because <laughs> they were having a rough week. That's what I mean. you come to Bible study when you've had a rough week, amen. amen. And they say, "Ah, how is this uplifting again?" <laughs> and I thought it was pretty. It was, it was a funny question. But actually, I said, "Because that's the whole point. It brings us tremendous hope and great encouragement." Because it shows us that Abraham, the man of faith par excellence, the father of all believers, was just a sinner like you and like me. And that God justified him freely by his grace through faith the same way he justifies you and me. Because listen, Abraham already failed the test of the covenant of works. Do this and you will live. Well, he didn't do it. So he wasn't looking for justice on his own. He was looking for mercy. And the only way mercy can be given to you and me is if justice is paid for. You follow that? Somebody's got to pay. God can't just say, I'll let you slide this time. He's no Santa Claus in the sky. We're going to see that it's just as true for Abraham, that great hero of faith, as disappointing as the scenes are sometimes. And he's going to, by the way, he's going to mess up again. So don't think once he got justified, he was a perfect person. So that's the other, i got to stop right here. These people who say once you're saved, you could live a perfect life. Don't think so. Because Abraham makes the same mistake after this. But that's for another sermon. So the point here is really simple. There's no way to earn a right standing with God. There's no way to merit or gain it by one's own efforts. We cannot possibly humanly achieve such an impossible task. Well, then how in the world can we as sinners have the righteousness that we need credited to our account so that we can walk with a holy and a righteous God? And it's simply, the answer is this. It's not by works that we have done but by faith in God who gives it by his grace alone through his son Jesus Romans 4 puts it this way you know I'm so behind on my slides I don't usually do this so there it is Romans puts it this way when a man works his wages are not credited to him as a gift but as an obligation stop my dad was a bricklayer he worked like a dog he would come home, I'm I know, not kidding you, he would have cement all over his, his hands look like baseball mitts, we always joked about it. those big huge hands, he'd come home covered, just totally wiped out. So he would eat dinner, he would begin to watch reruns of MASH or Sanford and Son, and then all of a sudden we'd hear, he'd be out. How do you think, if, my, if the boss went up to my dad and said, here's a gift for you, and gave him his paycheck, you know what my dad would have done? Would have decked him. I'll tell you why, because my dad earned that paycheck. Amen. And that's what Paul's saying here. He says in Romans, where he's quoting the verse before us in um, Genesis 15. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. And like I said, my dad would say, amen. But the next verse, this is interesting. However, to the man who does not work, But trust God who justifies who? The wicked. His faith is credited as righteousness. Now here's the the funny thing. In in the context, Paul's talking about Abraham. He's an example of one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies who? The wicked. So Abraham was what? Wicked. You know, I saw one of of my guitar heroes in in an interview. And he said, I hate that song, Amazing Grace. What? Yeah, and it kind of it affected me. I'm like, well, I don't want to listen to that guy anymore. But anyway, he said, he said I'm no wretch. You know, grace has saved a wretch like me. Well, then I guess you ain't saved. Because God only saves wretches. He only saves the wicked. And so that means to come to God and to receive righteousness, you've got to humble yourself and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a uh, Sinner. Very important. Let's see where we're at. Leave that up there. Up. Oh. See, I'm, 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 I'm learning how to use this thing. Forgive me, modern technology. Thank you. But what you need to see here too is very important. Faith is not something we muster up ourselves. It's not something that we earn, our, you know, like it's almost, some people look at faith like it's a work. Faith is simply the instrument through which we receive Christ's righteousness credited to our account. Or another way of putting it is, it's imputed to us. So it's um, like some people would say, we're going to see what Calvin says about it. It's the empty hand of the beggar that receives the free gift of righteousness. It's very important to see that. We don't become righteous because we still mess up. That's sanctification. We become righteous more and more, hopefully, until we see Christ face to face and then we will become fully righteous. But that's a work, that's a slow, grueling, painful process. Can I get an amen and a witness? But that's what we're not what we're talking about here. We're talking about justification, where Christ's righteousness, his right standing, his holiness is credited to your account, so you go to your righteous bank account, so to speak, and it says you're a billionaire. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about being covered in the righteousness of Christ. Now, in Abram's case, now, now you're like, how did you bring Jesus into this? This is Abraham, chapter 15 of Genesis. Listen, in Abram's case, it was Faith in God's promise of what? A son. And of course, ultimately, what does Paul point out? Who is the seed of Abraham? It's Jesus. He's the blessed one. So, Abram, Jesus said something that makes me jump out of my skin. I'm so excited that he said it, so I don't have to look to these old, crusty theologians. He said, Abram saw my day and rejoiced. Does that mean he understood everything we understand about Jesus? Of course not. But what it does mean, he understood enough. He understood that he was a sinner and he needed salvation from a promised son. He didn't know what that was going to look like, as we, thank God, do know. But he knew he needed a righteousness that was not of his own. And he knew he was counting on God to come through and give this promised son. When we trust in the promise of that same gospel, but now it's in full bloom, the death and resurrection of Christ, we believe God will do what he said he will do for all who trust in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So when, when Jesus said to Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, we say, God said it. That settles it. I believe it. You know, when I was first saved, when I would tell people I was a Christian now, I'd get a lot of scorn. I'd get a lot of laughter. I'd get a lot of people saying, oh, isn't that rich? And I had to take God at his word. I had to believe that God says what he, means what he says, that he would save even a sinner like me. And I had to believe even though all the things I've done, now I am righteous in his sight. And by the way, that is a statement of faith. Paul puts it this way in Romans 4. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact, listen, this is cool. He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Woo, And that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Listen, this is it. Being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why. Paul's telling you why. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Snap. Listen, now I got the next quote. You can read it up there, but faith is being fully persuaded that God has the power to do what he's promised. That means whether he promises a son when your body is as good as dead and your wife's womb is dead, or whether he promises you resurrection from the dead when your body really is dead when Jesus comes again. Faith is being fully persuaded that God has the power to do what he's promised. Listen, Luther puts it this way. i got to quote this because it really covers this. Look at how big of a head that is. I'm learning. I got to figure this thing out. But anyway, he says this. Thus the soul, in firmly believing the promises of God, holds him to be true and righteous. And it can attribute to God no higher glory than the credit of being so. The highest worship of God is to ascribe to him truth, righteousness, and whatever qualities we must ascribe to one in whom we believe. In other words, faith is no light thing. Faith is saying, I don't care if all the evidence seems to be completely contrary to what you say, God. I so believe in the veracity of your statements. I so believe in your holy character that I'm going to put my full trust in in what I cannot see, and what I have no evidence in front of me, but I totally trust you. And you know what that does? That brings God glory. It's the total opposite of those who trust in themselves and trying to earn their own way to heaven, because if that were the case, who would get the glory? Man would. If we could earn our way, we give God something, God owes us something, and we get glory. And God says, you, you take that mess out of here. This is why it was credited to Abraham as righteousness, because he was strengthened in his faith, he gave glory to God, and he was fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. And you know what the neat thing is? Paul later on says this in in chapter 4 of Romans 23, 25. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but for also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So that means I'm not reading this in Genesis 15. Paul says it's there. Isn't that awesome? that something I'm making up. You know some people who see Jesus in every literal line of the Old Testament, and like you know, the Rahab threw out a rag, and it was read that that you know that is symbolic for Jesus. But not necessarily. But in this case, absolutely so, because the Bible says it. The old saying goes like this: There's only two kinds of religion in the world. Listen up, if you've been falling asleep. Only two kinds of religion. The one that says, "Nothing in my hand I bring." What's the other kind of religion? something in my hand I bring you get that and the two de- there's two difference of death there's different destiny for both of those two as well third act and very very short literally a couple words and then we'll do our last act we've seen the third act God assures Abram of the land and Abram responds by asking another question look at verse 7 and 8 he also said to him I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Now, here's the thing that I want you to see, and then we'll just go right to the fourth point. But it's important to see this. We may look at this and say, look at how weak Abram's faith was. He's doubting here. How could the Bible, like Paul says, he didn't waver in his faith. This sure looks like wavering. Well, let me me ask you this, as my wife would always say. Would you dare talk to God Almighty like this? If God in a vision appeared to you, would you go, ah, uh, excuse me, respectfully, but boldly? My point is, Abraham has the audacity and the boldness to press God for details. If that's not faith, I don't know what is. He wants a little more assurance, and he's willing to ask Abba, Father, his Father in heaven, for it. And you know God loves to give good gifts to his children. Mm -hmm. What we have here, brothers and sisters, is the language of bold, childlike faith. Of the child who has no fear walking up and jumping on his daddy's lap and saying, Daddy! Look, remember the old days? We used to have dial-up phones. Remember we used to go, you know, and we'd say, hey, hey well, I, and, and when we're talking to a relative, maybe that lives real far away, we'd say, hey, well, I got you on the line. You ever do that? I, I, I need to ask you something. Abraham has the undivided attention of God right now. And he's saying, hey, well, whoa, whoa, well, I got you on the line. Now that I've gone this far, can I ask you another thing? Now, if you think I'm making this up, just go a few chapters later, and Abraham literally does that. You remember when he pleads for Sodom and Gomorrah? He says, now, now, Lord, if there's 50 righteous people, you won't destroy Sodom. And God says, okay, if there's 50 righteous, I won't destroy Sodom. And you remember what happens? He goes, well, since I've been so bold to ask the Almighty, he goes, you know, what happens if there's 45? You remember this? And then he went, well, what happens if there?' And then he goes, please, and by, by the time he gets to like 30 or 20, he goes, please don't be angry with me. But since I've gotten this far, that's what we have here. We have a faith that's willing to risk it all that trust a holy God enough to to believe he's good and that he does have our best interests in mind. Which is so many times we sin because we don't believe that. We think we've got to go get our own joy because he's withholding. So once again... Abram's trying to figure it out, but God in his condescending mercy and grace formalizes his covenant with Abram with a solemn ritual. That's the last thing I want to point out, assuring him that he's going to do exactly what he said he's going to do. And that's the fourth thing. God ratifies, or another word for that is he confirms his covenant of grace. We don't have time to get into it all, but I do uh, just want to look at the first few verses, verses 9 and 10. We read the whole passage earlier, so I'll refer to it. But look at verses uh, 9 and 10. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, arranged arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he didn't cut in half. And we'll just stop there for a moment. Now, one of the real striking features in this incident in Abram's life it's, it's while Abraham is seeing this vision while he's in a deep sleep, God actually, this is really, I hadn't seen this until just very recently, God actually addresses Abraham's question of why the delay? In other words, he's been wondering, why am I not getting this land? Do you see it in the text? He says very clearly that, well, for 400 years, You know, your people are going to be enslaved. Why? Because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. In other words, God's a just God. He's not going to just go in and knock those people out and give the land to Abraham until he's given them 400 years to repent. And after 400, listen, and this this is a scary thing. There is a time when God says enough. There is a time when, when there is no turning back. There's a time when God has been showing mercy, mercy and mercy and mercy and mercy and you continue to reject and reject and reject when God says it's full. Now the wine press of my wrath. You have a God that keeps his promises even when it hurts. And I assure you it breaks God's heart even when he has to judge the wicked. But he gives Abraham the reason why, hey, Abraham, we got to wait to give you the land. I found that very interesting. And the other interesting thing is he's telling Abraham, this is is, what a loving God. He's saying, Abraham, your descendants, I'm going to deliver them. They're going to come out with great goods, and they're going to eventually come to this land. But here's the thing. You're never going to see it. But I want you to know it's going to happen. And I think, do you ever think of it this way? You know, I've seen it so many times. You live by faith. You sow the seed of the word. You try to show mercy. You try to do what God tells you to do. You try to be a witness. You try to be the salt of the earth. And you realize that in this life, you're not going to see most of that fruit. Do you ever notice that? How many times I've seen after people have died, their son comes to faith. And I know that parent had been praying their whole lives for him. And part of me goes, oh, I wish that person was alive. They, you know, but the point is, don't worry about it. God has in store. <laughs> they will find out eventually. And there will be a great time of rejoicing. Then comes the actual making of the covenant. Or as the Hebrew actually puts it, the cutting of the covenant. And I, I got to say this. In ancient times, there were two types of covenant. There was what we call non-parity covenants and parity covenants. A parity covenant is between two equals, like in a marriage, a husband and a wife. Non-parity is between a sovereign and his subject. And that means, you know, it's not an equal thing. It's the sovereign who makes the promises. The other other subject is passive in the covenant. And if you don't believe that this is a non-parity covenant, What's Abraham doing during this whole thing? He's in a deep sleep. Can you be more passive than that? And I'll tell you, when God puts you in a deep, dark sleep, even Ambien can't touch that. You know what I'm saying? He was out. And here's the cool thing about that. Calvin once put it this way, and this this shows us Abram's part of the covenant. Faith is like an empty, open hand stretched out toward God with nothing to offer and everything to receive. That's Abram's position. That's you and I's position. And I'm going to close with this. A lot of the commentators will make the point, and I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong, that The whole idea of cutting the animals in half is God's way of saying is, may this happen to me if I don't do what I say. I got no problem with that. I'm not saying it's wrong. But I think there's something even deeper going on here and even more biblical. Because here's the point. This did happen to God. He did have his body torn. He did shed blood. So his, blood, his covenant was kept. The covenant of grace was kept through the blood of his son. You may remember this ritual that we still do regularly. Jesus said this cup is the new covenant. Sound familiar? in my what? Blood shed for you for all people for the forgiveness of sins. My brothers and sisters, if we ever doubt or struggle whether or not God will keep the covenant, the bread and the cup remind us he has kept it and he will keep it to the end us pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage of scripture. There's so much more in it. But we thank you especially that you grant us a righteousness that's not our own. It's an alien righteousness. It's Christ's very own precious righteousness that's credited to our account. We are clothed in his righteousness. So that literally, when you see us, you don't see our sin. You see your son's righteousness. This is a fact. It's from your word. And may we, from the heart, believe in it. But more importantly, believe in the one who promises it. Because he, that's you, are to be trusted. Father, as we live this week, help us not to live out of guilt. And out of defeat, but help us to live out of the victory of faith. Knowing that as we strive to follow you and sometimes fail, that you still love us as dear children. And your promise to take us with you someday into paradise still stands. Your blood proves it. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing an appropriate hymn in Christ alone. Because it's not in, in ourselves or anyone else, in religion, that we trust in. It's in Jesus. I pray.